this is Take Notes with Jen Rafferty, where we move music education in new directions. I'm your host, Jen Rafferty, a music educator, author, and huge social science nerd. And I am so excited to go on this journey with you as we highlight the intersection between music education and the social sciences. As teachers, having strong ethics and good moral character is part of the job, but it's something that is infrequently talked about. What does good moral character actually look like? Is there a standard of moral code within a school district, a community, or even within our teaching profession? What is our job if not to be an example of an ethical human, a role model for our students so they see themselves in our words and in our actions? My guest today takes on this interesting topic of teaching and boldly leads others into what can be very murky waters in an effort to find their inner truths, discover personal biases, and how to become more self-aware so we can continue to evolve as people, which is truly the best example a teacher can provide. Alison Russo started her career as a band teacher in Ithaca, New York, and as a side note, we both happened to go to Ithaca College, although we were not there at the same time. Then she found herself working at a nonprofit organization that focused on jazz education and in-school programming, as well as an additional very important program. I was also running the gender equity program, which was called Chica Power, because there's an, an enormous uh, gender gap in the jazz world. And this was our way of addressing it in our own community, but also trying, you know, towards the end of what I was working with, trying to branch out to bring this message of not just saying girls can play jazz too, because I think a lot of people know that women can play jazz, but normalizing that and bringing awareness to the differences that, uh, that some people bring when they're looking at a woman playing an instrument in a jazz style, as opposed to how they look at a man playing an instrument in a jazz style and also supporting the women who are professionals in the jazz world because they also need additional special support because their workplaces can be, well, frankly, dangerous uh, in a psychological or emotional or sometimes even physical way. So it was a very uh, vertical look at at this issue of gender in, in jazz education. It seems that one of the biggest challenges is to make something invisible, visible, that you can talk about it and really address the issues. So I was wondering how this even got started in the first place. So when we first started this program, it really was a way for us to get more girls involved in our jazz programs. And we thought of it as an access problem, you know, we're just not creating a space for for girls to learn jazz, which we were, but we felt like we needed to do more than just say, you're welcome here. We had now a special space, a special program that was just for women, just for young women, and only had female faculty, only had female guest artists, and 99% of the time only had female staff. So... Um, we thought it was an access issue. We just needed to bring them in. It, we thought it was a numbers game almost, but it was way, way, way more complicated than that. Um, and what was so wonderful about 
finding out that it was more complicated than that was that it was really the students and the teaching artists who taught us, the administrators effectively, what actually needed to happen. So over the course of those six years, it went from kind of a, it sort of started as like a check the box, uh, you know, we're going to do something for girls. And then we realized, no, 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 we're not just doing something for girls, quote unquote. We have to change the culture of our organization at every level. And this is something that we need to address, not just in this happy little bubble for girls, but we need to start addressing across every bit of programming that we have. And that it's not just an issue just to talk to girls about, because as I like to say, we would end up sitting in a room agreeing with each other and then I'll go home, <laughs> which is important and we need to do that. But if that's all you're doing, you're not actually changing anything. So towards the end of it, and I, I regret that I wasn't able to do more, it became more of an, an attempt to change the culture in every classroom that we had, all the co-ed classrooms, um, training out all of our faculty differently, bringing that as, up as an issue for everyone. So, you know, students wouldn't just come in for a Chica Power program and then say, wow, this is great, and then go into a co-ed program and then face sexism. Like, what does that actually accomplish? They're going to have a couple hours of feeling comfortable and then we kick them out into the cold like why we have to change everything that we're doing and we i learned very quickly pretty much immediately when in talking to the guest artists who were all you know professional jazz musicians who are putting food on the table for their family by playing jazz that they needed this space as well that they needed this space and time to talk about the difficulties and the obstacles that they've overcome in order to get where they are and that it was a healing experience for them as well. And I don't know if the students, especially the younger ones would fully appreciate, you know, that sort of experience, but I know that, you know, the core group of teaching artists that we had year after year and, um, and guest artists who who would come back had you know they felt differently about their own experience after speaking about it with the students so although that wasn't obviously our first and foremost for first and foremost goal was you know to provide them a therapeutical space but it was something that came out of it and we started to realize you know this is not just a wonderful thing just for the kids to have these sort of epiphanies about how they felt about their own gender and where they fit in in the jazz world. But it was also the adults were having that sort of epiphany. And I hope that the students, even if they didn't realize it in the moment, they might look back on that experience and what some of the teaching artists would tell them and the stories that they would tell. And that maybe they'll have a realization later when they're older, what that really means and the depth of it. I know I was definitely moved by a lot of the things that the, the, the guests would come in and tell. Talking about these issues can be really challenging. And it was really encouraging for me to hear that there was a space that was created that seemed safe enough for people not only to share stories, but for other people to really listen and receive the information they were hearing in a way that could hopefully make a difference in how they behaved outside of the classroom. 
It seemed like some of this started with the conversations and the questions that they would actually ask the guest artists that would come in and work with the students. Rather than asking them what decisions they made, we were asking questions about how they made those decisions. So instead of asking, you know, why did you decide, instead of asking questions like, uh, where did you go to college? We would ask questions like, how did you decide that you wanted to be a jazz performance major? Or, you know, in the case of, I love, I love, 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 love the story of Camille Thurman, who, if you don't know her, you have to look her up. She is a tenor saxophone player and vocalist, and she's the first woman to be like a core member of the Jazz at Lincoln Center Orchestra, which just happened like last year. And I was just having a conversation yesterday about uh, how I feel about that and how it took that long. Um, But her story, she was actually an earth science major in college at SUNY Binghamton. (laughs) And she, I think she minored in music, but basically like kept it up because she felt pressure from her family to pick a major that was not music. They like they, her family didn't necessarily support her going into music. And yet here she is in arguably the best and at least the most powerful jazz ensemble in the country, if maybe not the world. And she has a degree in earth science. (laughs) And so I think those sort of stories, not just to hear like, wow, that's incredible, but to ask questions about what it felt like to make those decisions were way more interesting conversations and way more important um, to have with students who are in high school or even late middle school um, because a lot of them are being asked, okay, what do you want to be when you grow up? And showing them that, you know, you can be an earth science major and still pursue a music career. You know, we just wanted to show them that that there are options out there and that they, not that the world is their oyster because it's not going to be easy, you know, showing them that they will encounter obstacles, but how do you deal with the obstacles is a more important conversation than learning about what obstacles there are out there. The life skills of learning how to deal with obstacles is definitely way more important than identifying what the possible obstacles can be. And bringing this topic to light among staff had to have been challenging. Allison talks a little bit more about that. We did some training sessions with all of the faculty. And again, I wish I had done more about, are you aware of this issue? Are you aware of how you're talking to the girls in your in your ensembles are you aware of how it can be a safety issue and it will feel very different if you're giving a private lesson to a young girl and you're sitting between her and the door have you considered how she feels if she feels 
like you are between her and the door if she feels like she needs to, to, to get out. And here's where it gets tricky. Because I'm sure hearing those words that Allison just said was a little triggering for some people who are listening right now. But here's the thing. It's just about awareness. And if you noticed, she said that over and over. Are you aware? Do you notice? Do you realize? Are you aware? And that self-awareness is the most important thing at this point of the learning process. Being aware and asking the questions about self-awareness isn't an accusation. It is just a question of self-reflection. So ask yourself, are you aware of how your actions affect your female students in your classroom? It's a hard conversation to have to show somebody a story, to tell a story from somebody else's perspective that clashes with the story that they have about themselves. So if I'm telling you, you know, you had a private lesson with so-and-so and she fe- she told me she felt uncomfortable because you were between her and the door. You can interpret that as I'm telling you that you were doing something sexist and you were a bad, mean man. And that is, uh, you know, the opposite of how you see yourself, understandably. I'm not trying to say that, but it's very easy to, that's the easiest reaction to have is, I'm not doing anything wrong. I'm okay. I'm not bad. And I never told anybody that they were bad. (laughs) But if it's something that you're not aware of, it can be a hard thing to hear. And therein seems to lie the biggest challenge. Being able to let go of your ego enough and to listen to somebody else's experience and something that you are a part of. Intention is not the same as impact. And the impact is so much more important. We must be open to receiving feedback in a way that's of acceptance and learning and wanting to be better because that is the way that we grow. And going back to what it means to be an ethical teacher with a good moral character, how are we supposed to do that if we're not able to open up our eyes and our minds to other people and empathize with how they experience the world and then change our actions accordingly? Music teachers are people and people have biases and cultural misunderstandings and sometimes explicitly racist, sexist, ableist, pick your thingist uh ideas. And unfortunately, what is taught in the majority of schools is from a Eurocentric classical canon. Uh which is not invaluable, but is not the only music that exists in the world. What's unfortunate about that being the canon and the typical thing that's taught in schools is that that particular culture of uh, European classical music is entrenched (laughs) in hundreds of years of sexism, racism, ableism, all of the isms, classism, big time. Uh, And so what we've been taught and what we've been taught to teach and how we've been taught ourselves is a culture of, well, is that particular culture? And 
it's the easiest course ahead is to teach as you've been taught. And that's also the worst way to teach because you're not teaching the people who are in front of you. So the hardest part is the introspection and admitting, you know, the first step is admitting that you have a problem and looking at what it is that you're teaching and how it is that you're teaching and in what environment it is that you're teaching and saying, does this actually make sense for the people who are in front of me, my kids? And that's a harder question to answer than it should be. But to know the people in front of you as people, not as stereotypes and not as assumptions, as fully formed individuals as much as possible, the better you know your kids as people, the better you can teach them because it's much better to teach people, to teach students than it is to teach a curriculum. These conversations were also fostered amongst the students in their classes. Thinking about what is most important, not just to these students, but the future generations, even after them, of making sure that what we're teaching them is ethical, that is justice-oriented, that it's put into the context of their lives, because that is what they... That's not only what they want, it's actually what they need, and that's what they've always deserved, and that's what we deserved in our education, and that's what all generations deserve in their education, and this is going pretty wide, but that's what I'd prefer to make my job, is connecting the ethical side of, um, well, our, ourselves and our, the humanity of ourselves to arts education. So that's exactly what Allison did. She created her company called The Critical Good, where she teaches social-emotional learning and equity and how to teach that in your music classroom. Obviously, we all want to do good. We all want to do no harm. We all want to, uh, you know, no matter what it is in, in your profession that you're trying to do good, especially as educators, we're trying to do good. But good can mean so many different things. Good can mean Bach, Beethoven, Haydn. But a critical good, the word critical kind of has a sense of urgency to it. And it has it feels kind of dangerous, you know, like like the critical care unit. You know, it's something feels a little bit scary about it. And that's the kind of good that I want to help people do. So getting into good trouble, <laughs> um, figuring out what's truly most important for the the time and the space and the people that you're with and throwing the rest away. And it should be scary. It should be scary because you're going to have to confront things about yourself and your reality that feel impossible and insurmountable. And as a, com as a learning community of educators, I want to figure out how we can address these really scary, insurmountable feeling things and make them feel a little bit less scary. But first, you have to be scared. And this is what I would tell my kids all the time in Chica Power is, be scared, do it anyway. So if you're listening and want to know ways in which you can make some changes concretely in your teaching practice, Allison talked a little bit about what you can do. So one of the things that we do in 
uh, the Ethical Arts Educator, which is the cohort slash online course that I have right now for music teachers. One of the things that I teach them how to do in the first week, and we do it every week for the six weeks, is how to interrogate a personal belief that you have. And this is actually a technique that came from, believe it or not, Toyota, the car company. Um, and it's a way to uh, figure out what is at the root of an a uh, root cause of a problem, you know? So for Toyota, it was something like, okay, why is this particular part not working? You know, when it, this, these cars are coming off the line and then they'd find out, okay, it's not a technical issue. It's actually an HR issue because we're hiring people who don't know how to use this technique. What seemed like an engineering issue is actually an HR issue. So how that relates to the work that we're doing, I know that seems like quite a leap there. The technique is asking why as many times as possible and not trying to come up with answers for the initial question, like five different reasons why, but interrogating at each level why that's true. So if at the top level you're you're trying to interrogate the belief, um, okay, I believe that... Uh, students should learn how to improvise. Okay, why? All right, I then you could say, I believe that uh, the students should learn how to improvise because uh, it forces them to know things by heart and not by sight. Okay, why is that important? Okay, uh, because that means that they really truly understand the theory. Okay. Why is that important? And once you start getting down those rabbit holes, you can really get yourself into some really, well, frankly, sometimes scary and exciting spaces in your psyche where you have to dis uncover these beliefs that you've had that can sometimes be icky <laughs> and sometimes uh, be uncomfortable. But if you don't sit down and address it and realize like, oh man, I have I have no idea why I think that's true. And I don't think I have a good reason for it. I think I just do that because I think I'm supposed to do that. That can lead you to take some more effective action than uh, than just going on with it with what it is that you're doing. So if you realize that I have no idea why I should be teaching improvisation, maybe you need to speak to an improviser and understand what it is that they get out of the experience of improvisation. Maybe you need to start improvising more in your own musical life. Interrogating your personal beliefs is an important practice. Uncovering the truths that lie beneath your beliefs is something that author Julia Gallif calls having a scout mindset. In her book, The Scout Mindset, Why People See Things Clearly and Others Don't, she describes how we use motivated reasoning as forms of denial, confirmation bias, rationalism, self-justification, and even delusion. But on the other hand, the scout mindset, as she calls it, is based on the idea of discovering truths, setting aside ego, and seeking out the bigger picture. This isn't always easy and requires ongoing reflection, which is why Allison has created a community within the critical good for teachers to talk about their beliefs and experiences in a safe space, alongside other teachers who are also looking for truth. Effective introspection, in my opinion, requires you to find your tribe of people and a place in which you feel as if you belong. It cannot happen in a vacuum.
And of course, my last question for Allison was, what is your big dream for music education? It's a big question. So my dream for the future of music education is that it is boundless. And by that, I mean music education and music and the experience of music is seamlessly blended into what happens in the school, what happens in the community, what happens at home. It all sort of blends together so that music doesn't just merely exist in the 43 minutes you're in your music classroom. That all of these things come together and make sense together so that it's not just taking place. That's not just happening, but it all supports each other. And by that, I also mean that the nonprofit organizations that are sharing the same physical space and communities as schools, that they're not siloing themselves off in competition, but rather supporting each other because they're doing the same thing in the same space with the same people, that they are building each other up and supporting each other and using each other as resources. Uh, that's that's sort of my dream for music education is that it is pervasive throughout a community. There just shouldn't be walls around music education. It just needs to be everywhere. And that's that's my dream. If you want to learn more about Allison and her work, you can reach her at her website, thecriticalgood.com, or on Instagram, Facebook, or Clubhouse at The Critical Good. All of these links are also conveniently located in the podcast notes. If you've enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to write a review, refer a friend, and subscribe to the podcast so you'll get notified as soon as a new episode drops. Until next time, this is Jen Rafferty. Have a wonderful day. This podcast was brought to you by Jen Rafferty Music, cover art by Molly Reagan and Good Neighbor Art, and music by John Kiefner.